Hi, this is Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. This is our podcast, and today I have the great privilege and pleasure of speaking with Thomas Lee Nielsen of Lee Nielsen Tools. Good morning, Thomas. How are you? Morning, Gary. Great. Thank you. Good. So for those who don't know, um, your company has been in existence for for how long now? Uh <laughs> about 35 years, Gary. <laughs> See, we, have, we have to admit this. People say, well, how long have you been doing this? And you go, oh, dang, a really long time. Yeah. What was the first tool you made? Bronze edge plane. Why that tool? <laughs> I really want to know that. Why that tool? Well, at the time, there were a lot of tools that um, Stanley had made at one time and no longer made that people were looking for. Uh-huh. Uh, you can only get them on the antique market. Um, I was working at Garrett Wade uh, in New York. A lot of customers were asking for things. Um, but there was a man named Ken Wisner who was making um, a bronze edge plane. He made it in bronze and iron. Uh, did a really nice job. People loved it. But he didn't make very many. So we were always in a backwater situation. Yeah. Um, and he decided he wanted to stop, so I took over with that tool. And for the next six or seven years, the only tools I made were tools that you could not buy um, from a, a current manufacturer, uh, special tools for special things. And since then, of course, I've, I've branched out, but um, that's how I started. So in the beginning, did you, were you casting these tools? Uh, no, I had. I was fortunate to have a friend nearby when I moved back to Maine. He lived about five miles from where I uh, my house and shop was, and uh, he had a small art foundry. So oh, uh-huh. uh, he started casting them. They were very small numbers. Uh, uh-huh. He started casting them, and he did the casting for about five years. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um. <laughs> I can't even ask this question without laughing. Has the market changed much? Don't, don't, <laughs> don't even go there. It's, uh, yeah, we'll get to that later, I think. But the, um, geez, the list of tools you have now, what? Numbers in the hundreds? You have yes. lots of tools available. Lost track of that number, too. Yeah, yeah. Did you have any idea when you started making these tools where you might end up? Did you have any idea? Did you have a business plan? Absolutely not. Yeah. I was just having fun making tools, and uh, if one thing led to another. Right. I mean, I wanted to have a serious business. The people who were making a few tools, like Ken Wisner, there were a few people. They tended to come and go, last a year or two. Right. Uh, but they were making high-quality tools, and uh, I thought it was, I thought it was, you know, the big manufacturers didn't want to make uh, the tools that some customers wanted and their quality was very much less than it had been in the past. Right. Um, and, and I thought that, well, you could, you know, at, at that point you could either be a boutique maker making a few tools and not make a living or, you know, a big, huge manufacturing company. I thought, well, you know, I'd like to have a business, a real business making high quality tools, but running it as a real business. Um, that did not include any plans about how big or 
how many tools or whatever, but you know, I want to do it seriously. Right. Right. It's a, uh, a difficult business model. I would think to, uh, uh, make quality tools, because uh, yeah. no one was doing it then, were they? I mean, no. except for a few one-offs, as you as you say. So, right? No, it's not easy at all. What are you crazy? <laughs> this, <laughs> this quality stuff. It's that's a. It's I think it's fascinating. Uh, you think about your company and uh, some others, uh, and the ability to not just survive but thrive in a world that's gone running in the opposite direction in terms of quality. Well, I think that's the reason why uh, we're successful because I think a lot of people are sick of crappy quality and all kinds of consumer products, but particularly tools. And for a long time, the, uh, well, big manufacturers sort of treated tools that they sold as a kit. So when you bought a brand new plane, you were expected to have to tune it up and fettle it and, right all of that sort of thing, which is a little ridiculous. You know, there's no other um, consumer items that I know of that you go to the store and you purchase and then you have to work on to make them work. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're tool like objects, but they weren't tools because they didn't work properly until the woodworker had spent a fair amount of time with them. And that amount of time became greater and greater as the quality became poorer. So, um, I, people responded to, very positively responded to the quality. And I think that for a beginner in particular, you know, if you don't know a lot about woodworking tools and how to settle them, uh, you're pretty well lost in the beginning. Right. So if you get a tool that works great right out of the box, then you can get on with learning how to do woodworking instead of being frustrated. Right. I can speak from experience that I've, uh, I, I don't have many tools at, at home. I keep everything in the, in the shop and studio. And um, I had a, one of your number fives straight out of the box. I needed to plane something and it worked and it was great um, at home. And so that's, uh, that's a real plus. I think one of the things, oh, I have to say two things. The word you're using is fettle with an F. Uh, yes. Some people don't know what that means, which is to tune up a, a hand tool. And many woodworkers are so surprised by how much metalwork they need to learn in order to become a woodworker, successful woodworker. Right. Uh, it's a surprise. Uh, which leads me to your book on sharpening. How uh, how was that experience for you? We are both complete illustrated guide authors for Taunton yeah. Press. How was your experience? That was very good. Yeah. Uh, it was a great academic exercise for me, personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but also, sharpening is the single biggest problem that woodworkers have, most woodworkers have, uh, including some people who have been doing it a long time. Not everybody has a problem with sharpening, but a lot of people do. And um, we spend a lot of time, whenever we're working with customers, whether it's at a show or in the showroom or on the phone, um, helping people learn how to sharpen well. Um, Because if you cannot sharpen, that's the one metalworking thing that you really do need to know um, because, you know, after you've used the tool for a little bit, it gets dull and you have to have it sharp. Right. Yeah, I know um, as a power tool guy, I started out with power tools um, and I had a uh, a 103 Stanley Mm -hmm. um, that 
my dad had given me and it was such a thin blade and hard to sharpen but i learned to sharpen it but it didn't hold an edge very well and but my dad had given it to me and it didn't adjust very easily but you know my dad had given it to me and sentimental value of course and uh it didn't cut any grain very well and then i got one of your low angle block blades and that was it i put my dad's (laughs) hand plane on the shelf and it's there at the top but i don't use it very much um yeah i've told you before i think the low angle block plane is it's my favorite tool of yours it's just great well thank you it's uh, my favorite one of my favorites as well Uh, one what are the others let's hear the others well, my all-time favorite is the low-angle jack plane. Right. And that's a favorite for several reasons. One is it works outstandingly well. And another is, uh, you know, I, I took the inspiration from a Stanley tool that did not work that well mm-hmm. uh, and was not that successful in the marketplace. Um, and with the changes that we made, which was a thicker, much thicker blade, harder blade, heavier casting for the body, um, much more precise machining. Um, the thing is a, is a little tank, and it can do it can do a lot of rough work. It can do finish work. It does mm-hmm. end grain, cross grain, flat grain. Um, it's just an extraordinarily versatile tool. Right, right. Do you um, think about tools when you're thinking about a new tool, or in the past when you were thinking about what should we do next, or did you identify? What, failures in the marketplace, failures in the design of certain tools? How did you go about that? Well, I looked at um, what had been done in the past and focused on tools that I thought people would use and mm-hmm. need or ones that people asked for. Mm-hmm. One of the limitations, certainly in the beginning, um, which led me to choose one tool over another, was whether I had the... Um, ability or capacity to make a certain tool. Right. So there were tools that I wanted to make that I had to wait a while for. Um, And the low angle jack was one of them. Um, I had started working on that about five or six years before we actually produced it. And in order to produce it, I really need to have a CNC milling machine Uh um, to get kind of... um, quality and repeatability and tolerances that I was looking for. So uh, that didn't happen until that tool didn't happen until I, I got my first CNC mill, at which point, you know, we, we were able to produce it um, to the quality standards that I really wanted. Uh huh. Well, it's a, uh, it's an amazing thing that, that um, there is this, sea of quality floating out there in the world and um i can just say thank you it's uh also interesting so you know you started 1981 my goodness um but i think there are three companies that have changed uh, our woodworking culture yours and then festool and then saw stop what do you think about those other companies, how they relate to, to yours in terms of cultural changes? Well, Festool certainly um, has had an extraordinary impact. The quality there is, is what has made their reputation. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think that woodworkers are very fortunate to have 
um, those kinds of tools available. I think SawStop is a fantastic idea. Yeah. The fact that it works is amazing. So yeah. you know, yeah. save people's fingers. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it is, it's a renaissance that's been going on for some years now in terms of woodworking tools that things are available that were unimaginable right. 30 years ago right. at a very high quality level. Right. Am I missing other companies out there? That, well, Veritas that? is the other one, of course, uh-huh. that I could mention. Um, they've brought a lot of interesting um, tools to the market, tools that make people's life easier. Mm-hmm. And they have a new steel out now. Do you know anything about this? I don't know a lot about it. I haven't uh, tried it out. It's a somewhat um, guarded right. as to what exactly it is. Um, we spent a lot of time some years ago looking at various steels and, um, I'm very happy with the A2 steel that we use Mm -hmm. Uh, for a variety of reasons. One is that it's reasonably easy to sharpen with normal sharpening stones. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not outrageously expensive, um, but it's a very high quality steel and we get good repeatable results from it. So I'm not, I'm not looking to change at this point, um, I think that I haven't had a lot of experience with uh, the Veritas uh, blades, mm-hmm. but I really like what we're making. Mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, the the factory, um, I read an article um, some years ago in the Wall Street Journal about this shoemaker in Vienna. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had inherited the business uh, I don't know, fifth generation, sixth generation uh, shoemaker, uh, bespoke shoemaker. Right. Um, and he was changing the culture there uh, because the shoemakers in the past all had, you know, they sat at a bench, like we're sitting at a desk, but they had walls up. So they couldn't see what the guy next door was doing. Uh-huh. They, didn't, they didn't want to share each other's secrets. <laughs> right. Which is just so bizarre. So he took these walls down so they could, you know, it's like, look, this is really, this is really a good way to build stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, How does it work in your, in your factory? Do people move? I guess my question is, do people move from job to job? Do they stay at one job? Do they, how does information get passed around the, the, the community there? Well, that's a great question. Uh, First of all, I don't like the word factory because that's, that has connotations that are, I don't like, you know, um, I call it a workshop, but, um, but it is a place where we manufacture stuff. Uh, there are about a hundred employees, so it's not small. Right. Um, I like, I love having people do different jobs. Right. I like to cross train them to do different things. Uh, that is not always possible because of people's, um, abilities for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also, you know, constraints having to do with needing to get a certain amount of certain parts made. Um, in the machine shop itself, there's machining, and most people who do machining don't do other things, and other mm-hmm. things being grinding, polishing, making wood handles, knobs, um, mm-hmm. and so forth. So there's some specialization, but I occasionally do the grinding department. But within the machining, grinding 
and polishing areas, I do like to have people cross-trained on all the different jobs that are done uh-huh. um, as much as we possibly can. And we do a lot of training, too. We're in Midcoast, Maine, uh-huh. which is uh, not a very large population center. It's difficult to find people. I was so, going to ask. Yeah, we take uh, you know people who have um, potential but not necessarily any experience. One of my best workers right now has been with us 25 years, was a lobsterman before he came uh, to work there. He'd never done any metal working at all. But uh-huh. he, he had a really good eye. Right really great work ethic and he you know has been an outstanding employee that's done a variety of different jobs over the years and done them very well and actually that's kind of a ideal scenario i like hiring people with experience but sometimes depending on what the experience is sometimes um, an experienced person will bring certain bad habits which are hard to break and deal with so having people as who are not experienced as well allows us to train them the way we want them to be trained. Are there, I don't know how to put this, are there captains or team leaders or yes. how, does that, how does that work? Yeah, we have a pretty flat organization, but we have uh, leads in every area. And in the actual machine shop, we have five people who are leads because oh, that's wow. where the bulk of the work is being done. And they're responsible for certain areas of the machine shop. And we try, you know, we work together with all of the leads um, to try to make sure communication is good and quality is where it needs to be and that um, the information is getting passed along to um, to everybody down the line. It's it's a complicated exercise, but I think we do it very well. Yeah. Uh, tell me how to hire a good employee. <laughs> Please, tell yeah. me how to <laughs> That's a very it's, it's the toughest thing I do, I think, is trying to find good people to, to work with. Yeah, it's a very subjective thing. And um, I think I know them when I see them, but it's hard to do much more than that. Um, I, I very often try, you know, I hire somebody and, and try them out. And if I see potential in them and then, uh, you know, usually it works out. Yeah. Not always, but usually. Uh-huh. I want so- people who want to work hard, who are interested and in, engaged and uh, excited and not just wanting to come and punch a clock. Right. So do you get people just coming down the road and saying, Hey, I want to come and work for you. Just not do. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Uh, we also of course advertise. Um, and occasionally we're lucky to have somebody who wants to work for us uh, so much. They're willing to move to Maine. Right. Um, that's really nice. Right. Um, occasionally somebody retires to Maine and wants a job busy. And, um, a couple of my best manual machinists, uh, are, are that kind of person who, you know, older, who've got a lot of experience in the business and, um, bring a wealth of knowledge to, to us. And it was just good fortune that they retired nearby. Right. Yeah, that's great. Let me put it this way. Do you think of yourself as, as a, uh, a toolmaker or a uh, business owner or a philosopher? Aha. <laughs> well, in a way, I think of myself as an artist. There but, you go. There you go. But a toolmaker artist, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're all of the, all of the above, personally. I, because a philosopher, of course, because you've made this stand in, in this world that says, this is what I'm about. I think that's so important. Uh, and you have the, the tools to back it up. 
I don't know if you remember this, but years ago, uh, oh God, probably 1990, you were traveling with Mario Rodriguez, um, and you came to my shop yes. and talked to me about your dad was a boat builder, right? Yes, he was. And two ways of building a boat: fancy with lots of trimmings and really well, and still beautiful but functioning well. And that was. I, I'm not putting it the way I'm sure you would, but um, there's a difference in, in how boats could be made. You can build a fancy yacht or you could build a really good dinghy and, uh, or yacht, whatever. Um, well, the, the aesthetic that I like is a functional beauty. So sure. nothing, nothing that doesn't belong there, but everything that belongs there being exactly right for its purpose. There you go. And that, you know, in, in terms of the sailboats that he built and that he particularly liked, that was one of their hallmarks. Uh-huh. Do you um, look at this time now uh, with optimism uh, as far as uh, the world of woodworking? and the? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's an enormous amount of energy, good positive energy out there uh, for hand tool woodworking. Um, especially all over the world. And I, I think that, um, you know, there are places in the world where this is just beginning, where people are, are, you know, finally having the money and leisure time to consider doing woodworking either for fun or, or as a, uh, as a small business, as opposed to a professional, professional guild type closed system you were referring earlier to the shoemaker right. well in a number of countries in europe you know if you want to buy furniture you go to the um furniture maker you don't do it yourself and the skills were very closely guarded there they did not share right those skills with the general public um but that's changing and i think that's really great yeah yeah i think the uh the ability to get information out, of course, one of our one of the great things about the digital age. Um, right, you can get so much information, um, and that's and that's great. Um, but there's still so much work that needs to be done on an educational level. I know that uh, we started a nonprofit to mentor high school kids at the bench, and um, I talked with one of the Portland public schools. Um, you know, administrators who was putting together maker spaces in the high schools, yeah, and 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 a maker space to them meant a laser cutter, a CNC router, and a 3D printer. <laughs> right, those are the tools they put in their maker spaces, and I just couldn't quite wrap my head around that. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it, and and um, you talk to people sometimes, and they and they're uh, they say, oh yeah, everyone needs that. You know, there are some people who aren't ready for college, and they'll they need manual arts training. And I and I say, no, the doctors and lawyers, and you know, all the captains of industry need to work with tools and wood. Yes, I think it's really important. Great. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, so that uh, that connection between the hand and the mind, I think, is so important. So what makes I, – I sort of want to wrap this up. I've taken a lot of your time. But 
Let me, let me ask this question. What does the nature of quality mean to you? Why is it, why is it so important? It is important because if you don't have quality in a tool, it won't work right, won't work properly, and then you won't use it. So you'll go, instead of you know learning how to plane and sharpen your plane, you'll go to you know a, a machine or you'll take up some other kind of pursuit. Um, quality, you know, I think some people's expectations for quality is a little um, unrealistic, but... On the other hand, you know, a plane needs to be flat. A blade needs to be flat. needs to be the correct hardness. needs to hold an edge a long time. The geometry of everything has to be exact. The fit and finish needs to be comfortable. Um, I think one of the things that puts our tools apart from some others is attention to the fit and finish. Oh, yeah. You don't want yeah. to pick up a tool and have it, you know, bite into your wrist or, or, or cramp your hand or uh, cut you or whatever. You can't get all of that directly off a machine. You have to do some of that by hand. Mm-hmm. And that adds to the pleasure of using the tool, making it, making it something you're going to reach for day after day. Yeah, I wonder if, um, if quality is a, is it a business model uh, or is it a personality disorder sometimes? Oh, I think it's definitely a personality disorder. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, yeah, it is. I got it. I, I'm stuck with it. It is a good one. Yeah. They're, I'm they're worse. <laughs> but that's how it is. You know, you can't, I, I'd be doing a job sometimes and I'm fussing with something and I'd be arguing with myself, but you're not making any money on this job. Stop doing this. And I yeah. would have to, you know, say to myself, shut up. I need to do this. Before I go out the door, I need to do this, and I'm willing to lose money on it to feel better about the quality of the tool. It's uh, well, it also has your name on it, and yeah, uh, that yeah. to me is is uh, you know things that have my name on them. I want to be right. Yeah, well, I think you've done a great job of that. I really, I really do. Uh, I know. Uh, speaking about uh, fit and finish, uh, I had marbles chisels. I had these, you know, you could buy them back when I started for four bucks a piece. Right. Uh, and I, and I, uh, I would find them used and stuff. And, oh, I used them for years, but they were these firmer chisels. They were not for cutting dovetails. Right. And uh, they, because they had, did not have a bevel edge on their, uh, on their edges. Right. And, uh, and then I got a set of yours and uh, that's it. That's what mm-hmm. I use now. Those are the tools I grab because really they, they feel great in your hands and then they do a great job but feeling great makes makes a big difference so i think that um one of the things that people don't understand and i think this is i'm going to generalize but the people who are thinking about starting woodworking or tool making whatever uh don't understand how um important sticking to it is uh that I gotta say, pig-headedness that uh, you've demonstrated in in growing this business. I think it's really important. Just well, staying with it through thick and thin. Stubbornness is a mixed blessing, but it <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly, and especially in the early days, was extremely important to sure. yeah. keep trying. And uh, I think the first ten years, um, about ten years, I consider my apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. 
because every year I was learning, having to learn um, something new, some new technology. And um, I had to learn those things in order to produce tools that I wanted to produce or to be able to um, do the work myself instead of hiring it done where I either, you know, starting out very small, Mm -hmm. I didn't have the luxury of being able to find people who would um, do the work for me at a good price because the numbers, the quantities were so small. Right, and, right. and and there was always the concern and debate about quality where, you know, the average machine shop would put out parts for you <laughs> that looked right, but weren't right. Uh-huh. So in order to control quality um, and the economy of the business, I had to learn a lot of things from scratch and that took a long time. And that was, yeah. And that was where a lot of the stubbornness came in, but it certainly was a great experience pre-internet. It was much harder to find the kind of information I needed to oh, find. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so there's a lot of trial and error, but on the other hand, I really did learn what I needed to know. And uh, casting, for example, uh, the friend of mine who did that for about five years didn't want to spend a lot of time, you know, as a, as a manufacturer, as an artist. And, um, so at, at one point, uh, he helped me set up a small foundry in my own shop and I did that for about six to seven years. Uh And it it then got to the point where I couldn't keep up anymore and do everything else. And at that point I was able to find a very good foundry to take on the work Uh and they were happy to have it. Uh, but in, yeah. the be- in the beginning, I had a very hard time uh, approaching people like that because I had no track record and I, the volumes right. were so small. So, right. you know, at 10 years, it's a fairly long apprentice, but it was an apprenticeship, but it was um, it was really good. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's funny the Malcolm Gladwell, which is not really his idea. It's uh, Eric Anders, I think, mm-hmm. on 10,000 hours. Exactly. It's really it's like three years. Yeah. <laughs> Of regular work, and it's it's a start, but yes. uh, you know, an apprenticeship, and and you know, it used to be seven years, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of grunt work that goes into that, and uh, you just need to stick with it and push through it. And I'm glad it's behind me. You know, yes. as as, <laughs> I'm sure you are too. So, but if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't be where you are today. And- exactly. You know, it's important. It's really important. Yeah, it's really it really is. So, um, in terms of the business, uh, did you write a business plan when you started? No, not at all. Me neither. <laughs> it uh, was pretty organic growth. I mean, I have learned a lot about running a business, of course. Right. Um, but uh, in the beginning, I was doing the work and running the business. Um, so, no, I had the Example of my father, though, who was an entrepreneur, uh, uh-huh. he built boats, but he had done a lot of different things uh, before that and um, after that as well, uh, or concurrently with building boats. So, and he was self-employed pretty much his whole life. Uh-huh. So that was really fundamental. I never even thought about working for somebody else seriously. Uh-huh. I did work for Garrett Wade for a little while uh-huh. uh, because I was in New York for other reasons, but, um, 
but you know, owning a business and whatever size business was always, um, what I assumed I would do. Well, uh, for me, and I think for many furniture makers, we, we start this journey, uh, because we're trying to avoid being in business and then it comes back to, <laughs> it comes back right. to bite you. Right. Exactly. You, you are in the economy, whether you want to be there or not, and you have to learn to, uh, to swim in it. Um, I know that, um, so in my mastery program, I, the residents, I, we always are talking businesses and business plans and the importance of it just to sort of lay out things for yourself. Um, when I started the, the school, the studio, I, I put a business plan together and it's remarkable how little of it came true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yet I, I, I still think it's a valuable, valuable tool just to put some ideas down. Um, do you have uh, something for the future? Yeah. What's, what's going to happen? You're going to stop working someday. What's going to happen to Lee Nielsen tools? I'm not entirely sure at this point. Yeah. Um, my daughter works in the business. My uh -huh. son-in-law and um, stepdaughter work in the business. Uh -huh. uh, I hope that they will want to continue mm -hmm. trying to, one of my uh, focuses right now is organization. Yeah. Uh, trying to build the organization, um, especially in terms of management. So that uh, that is easier. That kind mm -hmm. of transition is easier. Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing when you you know run everything yourself, and it's another when you have other people helping you. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure one of them will keep on going. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they've all grown up in the business. They've all really enjoyed their association with it. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Yeah. I don't have a specific end goal at the moment. Right. Other than, to, other than to see the business continue to right. thrive. Right. Yeah. I have to figure out for myself how to how to keep the studio going. And I think I can stay with it for, oh, well, who knows? I hope another 10 or 15 years. We'll see. See what right. happens. Well, um, but yeah. it, at the same time, I really think there's uh, – I have a, a mission to make sure it continues, and that's part of my job is trying to figure out how to make that a reality. Um, I'll tell you a story. I was uh, out in eastern Oregon, me and my beagle. We were out uh, just chilling out one Fourth of July, and uh, down the – it was a place called uh, uh, Enterprise, Oregon, which is farming country. And uh, the place where I was staying um, said, down the road, there's a guy with a tractor museum. Ooh, I said, well, cool. Dang, I got to go see this. Right. So I went driving down the road and drove up to this guy's place. And he had two giant barns mm -hmm. filled with tractors <laughs> that he made run. Right. Uh, and, you know, that he found in gullies and fields. People would call him up from all over the West and say, hey, you got this tractor. You want it? And he would make them, make them work again. And... Right. Uh, is an incredible museum. But I asked him, what are you going to do with this stuff? Right. He didn't know. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, I'm asking him this question. I got to ask myself that same question. Well, you know, we don't last forever, but I want this, this information to last. I want this sense of quality to last. And so yes. got to figure that out. 
Well, and I think that it will. It's just, you know, the answer to that question, how to do it, is not always obvious. No, no, and it's it will take whatever form it's going to take. It's just right may not be exactly what we what we plan. So, anyways, good luck with that. Yeah, thank you. Good luck to you. Good luck to you. And thanks very much for chatting today, Thomas. This has been great. Um, I'm gonna say thank you and check out our other podcasts on NorthwestWoodworking.com. Thanks again, Thomas. And thank you, Gary. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care. Don't forget that the Lee Nielsen Hand Tool event will be coming up February 15th and 16th at the studio. And uh, all are welcome. It's free, open to the public. You get a chance to use all our tools. and It's a great event um, if you're just starting out or if you're a seasoned veteran to try out some things. And uh, they take over the studio for those two days. And show off their wares. Thanks very much for listening. Take care.